It was about seven years ago, and one of our college students invited me to join him at a gathering at, uh, down on campus at UNL. It was a gathering of the, the secular humanists of UNL, a club that titled themselves the Secular Humanists of UNL. And I thought, that sounds like fun. That sounds like fun. Let's go check it out. It was going to be an open Q&A. Now, if you know anything about secular humanists, you know that, that at a basic level, what they believe is that uh, all that you can count on is what you can see and what you can touch, what you can experience with your senses. So the spiritual realm and the realm of religion is something they just reject. Now, when we arrived, we found that we were the only two that decided to attend. So it was four secular humanists and me and my friend. Ended up being a great evening, though. It was really interesting. We had a great conversation. Uh, they asked some interesting questions. They, they uh, ended up started kind of interviewing us, actually. And one of the questions they asked was somewhat absurd. It was, you know, if it was ever discovered that uh, cats have self-consciousness, will that, will that harm your view of God? And we said, well, I don't think so. It's, you know, I don't think so. What if you found aliens? What if aliens were discovered? Would that compromise your view in God? And we said, no, we believe they will need grace as well. In time, in time, we began to ask them a few questions. And I had a question for them. And it wasn't, do you believe in God? Because I know they don't. My question is, would you like there to be a God? Would you like there to be a God? And one of the young gentlemen spoke up and he said, I would love it. That'd be awesome. And I asked him why, and he said, because if there was a God, then I could ask him whatever I wanted, and he would have to answer me. And we kind of talked for a moment, and I suggested to him he might want to consider. If there is a being that exists, that created the entire universe and holds it together, if he were to come into contact with that being, does he really think that his inclination would be to treat that incredible being as a genie, his own personal genie. I think the only proper response would be worship. As we began our study of Colossians, we said that our prayer is that we will encounter Jesus more fully. We will see him afresh. We will be awed by his magnificence. And today, as we open our text We are going to encounter just a portrait of Jesus that is so beautiful, it's hard to even comprehend. Now, Paul was addressing false teachers in the city of Colossae, false teachers who were, in turn, through their teaching, diminishing the work of Christ. And the question that faced the Colossians and that faces us this morning is is that if this is who Jesus is, what we are going to read this morning, and this is what he has done. Why would we place our faith in anyone else? Why would we cling to anyone else? That's what we want to talk about this morning. So open your Bibles with me to Colossians 1, verse 15. We'll be going through 15 to 23. Now, last week, Brian talked with us about the astounding reality that in Christ, God has qualified us. Completely incapable of qualifying ourselves, but we've been qualified to the praise of his glory. 
And then as that passage ended in verse 13 and 14, it says this. It says that he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are people of the kingdom and we have a king. And our king is the beloved son. So now in what follows, Paul is going to start to tell us about the beloved son. Now, this is a tightly packed passage. It is dense, and so we are going to work our way through it piece by piece. But I'm going to ask you to put your thinking hats on with me, okay? So verse 15, let's read the whole verse, and then we'll talk about the parts. He, that is the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is who Jesus is. Now, often when we're talking about humanity, we talk about how we are made in God's image. We bear his image, and we have a responsibility as his image bearers. That says something profound about who we are as people, and it says something about the dignity that all humans deserve. That's not what Paul's saying about the Son, not what he's saying about Jesus Christ. He doesn't bear God's image. No, he is God's image. He is God's likeness. An image in some senses is, is a representative of something, and Jesus is God's representative. As people, we long, I think, it's within each one of us, we long to see to see God up close and personal, right? We're flesh and blood. We want, to, we want to meet him. We long to meet him, but we have a problem. Paul tells us that God is invisible, can't be seen. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us that God is spirit. He's personal, but he can't be seen. He doesn't have a body. And we long to meet God. We long to see him. This is something the disciples struggled with as well. You might remember that there was a little encounter between Jesus and Philip in John 14. And Philip turned to Jesus and said, Lord, show us the Father. Essentially, let us see God. We long to see God. And Jesus said back to him, Philip, have I been with you so long? And yet you still don't know me. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. God sent his Son into the world as the physical incarnation of God himself. He is the image of the invisible God, not a photocopy, not a lesser version, but God himself. To say that he is the image of God is to say that he is God. If we want to know God, we need to seek the Son. When we encounter the Son, we will encounter God as He truly is, because the Son is God. And then Paul goes on to say He is the firstborn of all creation. Just hearing that word firstborn in our modern minds, we tend to think of kind of a series or succession of births, right? And Jesus is the first one that is born. And when you think that way, it can start to lead you down a path that would make you, make you believe that Jesus is somehow lesser than God, that God the Father created the Son, 
And he's the first of the Father's creations. In fact, this is an ancient heresy called Arianism, something that the early church wrestled with based on this verse. Interestingly, a study came out this past week put out by Lifeway and a few other people, and it was looking at the theological beliefs of evangelicals. And we would just broadly identify as an evangelical church. That's kind of a catch-all term. I think it's lost some meaning. I think it's become more of a political term lately. But the evangelical, evangelicals, a series of evangelicals were asked a series of questions. And one of the questions was this. Do you agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God? And 73% of evangelicals said, yep, I agree with that. Jesus is the first and created being. It's not what it says. That's not what it means when it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. To get the idea of firstborn, we have to go into this first century in this ancient mindset where the firstborn of a father was the one who deserved a double portion, the one that had the authority in the family, the leader, the forebearer, the one that would be in charge. When Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's making a statement about his relationship to creation. He is in charge of creation. He is the authority over creation. He is superior, supreme over creation. He is the preeminent one, the chosen one, prominent over all creation. Creation is subordinate to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we return to verse 16, Paul continues, and he gives us the reason that Jesus has this authority over all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now in verse 16, we have to pay close attention to all the little prepositions. When we read Paul, we got to pay attention to words. He says a lot in just a few sentences. And the first preposition we run into is by, for by him. Now, some of your translations might differ from that. And that Greek word is a little slippery. It's just a little word, two letters, E-N, N, but it could mean for or by. And most commentators agree that, I'm sorry, it could mean in or by. And most commentators agree that in is the better translation. Some of your translations might even say, for in him all things were created. In him all things were created. This is difficult for us to understand, but what this means is that the place that creation exists is within the Son himself. What's the location of creation? Is it out there or is God out there? Answer, no. Creation is in God himself. God is not outside other than creation. Creation sits within God himself because of the vastness of who God is, his incredible immensity. There's no other place that creation could exist. The location of creation is in God, in the Son. It'd be like this, if this room were God, right? It's a metaphor, don't take it too far. If this room were God, and then in the middle of this room sprang forth by the very power and might of God, a creation out of nothing, 
We'd say, where's that creation exist? And we'd say, it exists in God. Creation exists in Him. In Him. When we drive to work tomorrow, we are driving around, we are moving in Him. Paul says that in Acts 17. Do you remember when he says, in Him we live and move and have our being? Jesus on an incredible scale. Then Paul continues and he gives us some particulars, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There's some debate over whether Paul is referring to physical rulers or spiritual rulers here. Other places he'll talk about spiritual authorities, the powers of the air. I think the answer is that It doesn't matter a whole lot because what has just been stated and what is going to be stated is that all things are subordinate to Christ, whether they are physical kings, physical rulers, physical dominions, or spiritual dominions. All of it subordinate to him. They are in him. And then Paul continues and he adds two other prepositions. He says all things have been created through him and for him. So let's go down the list. All things were created in him. The sphere in which creation exists is in him, in Christ. And Paul says all things were created through him. That means the means by which God created is through the Son, through the agency of the Son, through the power of the Son. All things created through him. And all things were created for him. What's the purpose for which every single thing exists that exists, whether they be in heaven or on earth, invisible or invisible, all of it exists for him. All of it exists for him, to bring him glory, to give him honor. Everything that exists, exists for him. The son, Jesus Christ, is sovereign over, is higher than, is more powerful than, is in charge of every single thing that exists. Why? Because all of it is in him and came about through him and exists for him. Whatever you're thinking of, whether it be a cabbage or a kitten or a queen or a king, everything seen and unseen, all of it exists for him. That's who the son is. When we worship the king of kings, that is who we are worshiping. We said at the outset of this series, we can't think too much of Jesus. This is no genie. This is the eternal king. This is the sovereign over all creation. This is the grand cosmic Christ. Now, if that's not completely clear by now, Paul comes back with an emphatic kind of summary statement in verse 17. He, again, the son is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has existed for all time. He's always been, and he always has been before all things. And as the eternally existent one, all things are held together in him. What's that mean? What that means is that the very seats that you are sitting in now, Your bodies, our lives, the universe, whether it be a grain of sand or the largest mountain in the world, all of it held together by him, bound together by him, 
has integrity because of him. He is actively sustaining all things, even now as we speak. What's the reason that order exists instead of chaos? It's because Jesus is the prime sustainer of the universe. All things are held together by him. On a personal level, that's true, isn't it? As you turn to him, as you think about him, is he the one for whom you can say, my life is held together by him? My relationships are held together by him. Oh, I once lived in chaos, but he has brought order out of the chaos. He has arranged my life. He has brought integrity to my life, and he is the one that sustains it. If you can say that, it's because that's exactly who he is exactly who he is the prime sustainer of all things the son is currently holding together all things and as paul continues on he he continues to to lift our eyes to lift our vision of just the supremacy of jesus christ but as he continues in verse 18 it's almost as if he's directing our vision forward on the timeline turning towards Jesus being supreme not only over creation, but also over new creation. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body, the church. That word head, there's a lot of lively debate about what exactly that word head means has two possible meanings. I think in this case, both meanings are true. The first is that head means authority. The one that has authority over, and certainly that's true. Jesus is the authority over the church. The church throughout time, the church universal, the church across the world currently, and the local church. Head also could carry the meaning of source, kind of like the head of a river. And in that sense, it's, it's kind of like the originator. And Jesus is the originator of the church, isn't he? The church would not exist without him. He is the head of the body, the church. The church is his body. Currently in the world, the way that he is manifesting himself in the world is through his church, through his body, incarnating himself, sometimes we say. You might read a book that's called Incarnational Church, basically participating in the work of God that he continues to do through his body. And we, of course, as the church, we are a new creation reality. God in you, if you are in Christ, is bringing about a new creation, and he has begun that new creation through giving you his very spirit, making you alive to him. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. New creation, we are a new creation people. The head of the body of the church, as we think about how we're moving forward as a church. I can just tell you, we are desperately clinging to this idea. Jesus is the head of the church. 
Jesus is the head of the church. Oh, we're in big trouble if he's not. As we think about the way that we work this out practically, as I was kind of considering this, I thought, you know, one way that we work this out practically on a weekly basis is that we are a people that are committed to submitting to him by submitting to his word, submitting to his very word. Every week when we come up here and we preach, we're opening his word and what we are endeavoring to do is say what it says, not what we would like it to say. There's a lot of things we'd like Scripture to say, but we surrender all that to what it says. As preachers, we work every week to figure out, Lord, what, what, what did you mean when you said this? Because I want to convey, I want to communicate what you mean, not what I'd like you to mean. There have been a number of times when I'm preparing over the week and I'll see the text and I'll think, oh, this is going to be great. I'll talk about this thing that I'm so passionate about. And then I'll get into the passage and I'll realize that is not what it is talking about. I'm really passionate about this thing over here, but that's not what this text is saying. And so I have a choice now. Am I the head of the church <laughs> or is Jesus the head of the church? I want to say what he wants to say. And so we surrender. We acknowledge, no, you're in charge. We're going to say what you want to say, not what we wish we could say. We want to affirm he is the head of this body. He's the head of the church. Then he continues, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, this continues that new creation theme. Jesus is the first among a people that are living or going to live in a resurrection body. He's the first one. He's the forebearer. He is currently living in the reality of a glorious resurrected body. That's what he's currently experiencing. And in that we find hope. There's a moment that the new creation will be finalized. It will all be culminated. It has begun, but it will all find a culminating moment. And Jesus is currently living in that. Every time I do a funeral, it seems like it's very helpful to talk about this. Just did a funeral about 10 days ago. And you know, in the midst of the tragedy of, of death, and death is a tragedy, it is not what God intended. We, as believers, find hope in two places. The first is that the moment someone passes away, if they are in Christ, they are immediately present to him. Immediately with the Lord. You remember the thief on the cross, and Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, what a hope. What a hope we have that suffering ends and that whoever we love that has passed away, that person continues to exist and exists with the Lord. What a glorious hope that is. But we don't stop there. We go, and at funerals, we commit the body to the ground, but we don't believe that it will stay there. It's an audacious thing that we believe because Scripture says it is so, is that one day that body will rise in Christ, and it will be made new. It will be glorified. It will be uncorruptible. That is the existence that Jesus is currently experiencing. And all of us, if we are in Christ, will one day experience that glorious resurrection. When we will live in a new heavens and a new earth. And he's the beginning, the firstborn. 
And what we are currently experiencing, we, what he is currently experiencing, we will one day experience. It almost feels as though Paul is kind of walking us along a timeline. I just said he turned our eyes towards the future, and he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus in all things. So past tense, all things were created in him and for him and through him. Present tense, he's the one that's holding everything together. Future tense, but a future that we in Christ get to experience now. We have been made alive. We are his body, the church, the new creation living in this sphere. And then future, he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus Christ supreme over every single moment Supreme at each point, supreme over all. And then as Paul finishes verse 18, he says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. Does he have first place in your life? He is the supreme one. Oversees all things. Holds all things together. Everything exists in him and through him and for him. Does he have first place in your life? Sometimes I think we find that we want to relegate him to second place in certain areas of our life. We'd like him to have first place in terms of qualifying us, paying for our sin. But then sometimes when it comes to the daily run of life, we sometimes say, now, now I'll, I'll take first place. Thank you very much. Oh, church, let us... Let us continue to place him first, first in everything, first in our families, first in our lives, first in our friendships, first in our occupations, first in our pursuits. Now, the question that starts to arise is, you start to say, now, why? Why did God give all of this to his son? All of this authority, it seems like, He's just the biggest thing on the scene. Why did he do it? In verse 19, Paul answers, and I love his answer. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Why? Well, just because it pleased God. God delighted in the Son, and He chose to give the Son authority because it just pleased Him. It pleased Him to let the fullness of deity dwell in Him. That is, Jesus Himself walking around in the flesh was the fullness of God, was God Himself. And second, to reconcile to Himself all things. Over these first three weeks of this study in Colossians, we've been reflecting on the reconciliatory work of Jesus. Reconciliation essentially means to make peace where there was no peace, to, to heal what is broken. In this case, there was a relationship that was broken. Paul says that in Christ and through the blood of his cross, all things were reconciled. All creation had fallen under the curse and through Christ, God broke the power of sin and death. Began to restore all things. All of it is God's doing. All of it by grace. 
That's what God is doing. And he's doing it for his good pleasure because it pleased him. Now, Paul might stop there, but I would say this is all rather abstract. If you're not someone that loves abstraction, you might be a little frustrated right now. saying, okay, Paul, but what's this mean for me? And so Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty, I guess you could say. And he moves from this general statement of Christ's reconciling work, and then he brings it right down to the level where we sit, right down to you and right down to me. Verse 21. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, it's a sobering thing to read that second person pronoun. Although you all, although us all, each one of us, you and I, were alienated from God, hostile in attitude, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. I mentioned earlier that study that was done about evangelicals' beliefs. There was another statement, and the statement read like this. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 57% of evangelicals said, yeah, that's, that's true. I agree with that. And I understand why that's an attractive thing to believe. I understand why that feels good to say, but I think that if you move past the niceness of that superficial statement, you'll soon discover it just doesn't hold true. My favorite definition of reality is is reality is what you run into when you're wrong. You bump your head right up against it. And I think that when you start looking at the reality on the ground, reality in your own heart, you'll find that statement just doesn't hold true. It's a sobering thing to think that that I am someone who was hostile in mind. But the more I think about it, the more I think, boy, that's that's accurate. If I just look on on a minute level, and I see that there's an occasion where I just, I know what God wants, but I choose to do it my own way. I choose to, to go my own way and maybe manipulate someone, even though I know that is not loving. What I'm doing essentially at the level of the heart when you kind of get past the surface is I am essentially saying, I know better. I know God says this. I know he says that he'll direct my action, but I am going to try to make my way in the world. And I'm going to try to do it by my means. I'm going to try to control this person because I think I know what's best. And I'd like to be on the throne, thank you very much. I'm okay with Jesus being first in some places, but right now in this particular moment, I would like to be first. And at that level of the heart, I'm compromising his place on the throne. And whenever that happens, that is an act of mutiny against a sovereign. My heart is participating in an uprising against the creator of the universe, telling the creator of the universe, I know better than you in this case. And that 
at a level of the heart is hostility. It's hostility. That's us. Rejectors of the supreme creator and the prime sustainer of the universe. That's who we are. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, over these last three weeks, every week we've had the opportunity to just glory in the reality of God's grace. Last week we were told we could not qualify ourselves. God did it. God qualified us. And now, once again, we need to ask the question. Paul just said that that in Christ God was reconciling all things to himself. And so the question is, does that include us? Does that include you and me, us rebellers against the sovereign of the world? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, that includes you and includes me. Verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That word yet, literally it says, but now he reconciled you all, us all, you and me through the blood of the cross have been reconciled that he might present us to God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. As we continue with him on this march towards this future moment when we will be living with him in a new heavens and new earth, the hope that we spoke about that first week, the answer is yes. Yes, that that is true for you. It is true for me. His blood is sufficient. But I don't know if you caught it. In verse 23, Paul Paul starts that sentence or that, that verse with that little word, if. If you're anything like me, maybe you start to get a little nervous. That starts to make you feel a little precarious. What do you mean, if? That starts to sound, Paul, like there's a condition. And and. In my own humanity, I start to think maybe the condition is that it does actually all depend on me. Maybe the false teachers are right. Maybe Jesus Christ is not enough. Even despite all the things you just said, Paul, it sounds like maybe, maybe it's if I go to church enough or if I, if I memorize enough verses or if I give enough money or if I'm nice enough to my friends or nice enough to my family, if I measure up. And in my frailty, I start to go back to what I need to do. But what does Paul say? No, it's what he has done. And we cling to faith. We have been saved by grace through faith. It is faith and faith alone. There's no adding on. It's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Trust Him. Place your faith only in Him. Cling only to Him. In light of who He is, in light of what we have just read, as we go out, 
Let us think largely of Him. Let us think more of Him. Let us think grandly of Him. He is the one who is first in our life, and we go out in faith and faith alone in Christ's sufficiency, not in self-sufficiency. Because He is who He says He is. And He has done what He has said He has done. He has reconciled us, and we are saved through faith. And if this is who he is, why would we cling to anyone else? No, we make him first. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in him, all things hold together. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we can, we can barely fathom, we can barely comprehend how magnificent you are. Our feeble minds try and we trust your word, but, but it's hard to fathom just your scope, your scale, your power, your might. And yet you have come down to us. And you have shown us the Father. And you, through the cross, have reconciled us that we might live in relationship with you. And we will never stop praising you for that. And so we name you today as a church. You are first. You are Lord. You are over all things. And we give you all the praise because you are worthy. And we thank you. Amen.